Good morning, friends. It's wonderful to be with you. So, you, um, if you've heard me preach before, you know I'm usually, this, you know, a hopeful kind of person. And I have to admit that lately I've, I'm on the edge of overwhelm a lot of the time. And not to worry about me, I have great support systems and I have plenty of resources and I'm fine. I just realize, I'm, I'm, I feel like I can't quite manage everything more often. You know, we all, all of us have, most of us anyway, have those moments. And I just, I'm having more of them lately. And it's the pandemic. And it's the election that happened in the middle of the pandemic. And it's the, you know, the insurrection a year ago at the Capitol. And it's the this and the that and the next thing and the war in the Ukraine. And I can't bear to even read the news. I get family members to update me on significant things happening over in that part of the world. Um, and so that's, you know, that's the despair right now. And I, I want to open. Um, before I do what I want to do, which ends with faith in humanity, remember. Um, I want to start first with a, a blessing from Jan Richardson, who is one of my favorites. She's a United Methodist minister, but her, her ministry is mostly, I think, in doing art and poetry. And she writes blessings over and over again. She writes blessings, which is something I think we all need more of in our lives. This one is entitled Blessing in a Time of Violence which is to say this blessing is always, which is to say there is no place this blessing does not long to cry out its lament, to weep its words in sorrow, to scream its lines in sacred rage, which is to say there is no day this blessing ceases to whisper into the ear of the dying, the despairing, the terrified, which is to say there is no moment this blessing refuses to sing itself into the heart of the hated, and the hateful, the victim and the victimizer, with every last ounce of hope it has. Which is to say there is none that can stop it, none that can halt its course, none that will still its cadence, none that will delay its rising, none that can keep it from springing forth from the mouths of us who hope, from the hands of us who act, from the hearts of us who love, from the feet of us who will not cease our stubborn, aching, marching, marching, until this blessing has spoken its final word, until this blessing has breathed its benediction in every place, in every tongue. Peace, peace, peace. So, another moment here to sink into the despair of our situation right now. I may have a big, a big dark gray word cloud in the top left corner of my paper here. So let's get that out of the way. I already named a lot of what, we're, what, what sits heavy on our hearts these days. But there is more. There is poverty and economic inequity which is only increasing um, in our lifetimes, all of us in this room. Um, we have, we're, I think there are crises in mental health in various populations. I happen to be the parent of young adults, so I'm very worried about youth and young adults and how they're doing in terms of mental health right now. 
Um, there are, we are, as many of us are more and more and more aware of the very long history of racial oppression in our country in particular. Um, there's political unrest and incivility, which is not limited to the United States. It's, we're seeing it play out in other places in the world as well. There's war. There's a culture of separation. It occurred to me as I was pulling my thoughts together last night that um, just the, the this, you know, we, we all live, we, we get a lot of our input from the world electronically these days, and all of that is pretty much commercially driven, advertising driven. And that advertising only works if it manages to separate us from each other, make us feel like we're lacking enough to go and spend money on something. I really believe advertising is a big problem that we don't pay much attention to. Um, and we have a general in our culture, um, I th in, let me say that in white American culture, I am feeling right now a huge lack of, um, I, well, no, a cultural poverty, I think, is what I'd call it. I remember um, a few years ago, and I, I'm sorry, I can't remember who I was reading, but I was reading about anti-racism work and education. for It was something aimed at white people. And one of the points that I, I didn't understand how to think about when I first encountered it was that we white people are busy appropriating other people's cultural artifacts and using their music and their poetry and their art and all of this. And we ought to go and learn our own culture. And I was like, oh, we don't know. Those of us who are Euro-Americans often do not know our ancestral cultures. Um, some of us have been on this continent for a very long time, if you consider 300 years a long time, which not every culture would. Um, some of us have been here far less long than that. Um, and many of the circumstances that brought the white colonists onto this continent um, were really traumatic. Um, people came because they were in trouble with the law or they were escaping the law um, some other way. Um, or because they were running from cruelty in, their, in the, the homes where they lived or scarcity. Um, people came uh, not for the big adventure <laughs> that we sometimes sort of imply in our stories of our, of our continent. Um, and I think a lot of that's unresolved. And I, I, I have never known anything much about my great-grandparents. That, that's the generation in my family that immigrated. Um, and I've recently become aware that I am really, really, some part of me is really angry. I was, I, I'm not sure if I'm angry about that fact or if I'm angry at them. It doesn't, I'm not sure it really matters. Um, but there's, there's this, um, I wonder, how much floating through our culture the, of the need to judge each other and punish and get it right and fix things, how much that has to do with being cut off from our ancestors and our histories. Um, not every, you know, and, and this is different. This is really different from family to family. Um, but I wonder, there's a lot. And with environmental change happening and climate warming, everybody finally agreeing that yes, oh, it's a real thing. Yeah, guess what, it really is happening. 
Um, and other things, all the other things I just mentioned. I, I am hearing more and more of a real fear, both for our descendants and a fear of our descendants. We are afraid, I think, many of us, of the condemnation of our, 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 our descendants, that they will look back and judge us. Because, you know, we would judge people who did the wrong thing. Because so, we live in a culture of judgment, and I think we are very afraid that they will look back and find out that we have done we have done it all wrong, and we didn't fix it good enough for them. Um, and I think part of that is probably a projection of our own sense of self and our own sense of our our ways of being in community. But we're not proud of our legacy, I don't think. Um, and I think. We also fear, I think, for our children and our children's children and their children that, and this, that they, just like us, won't be quite enough. They won't be well enough resourced, well enough prepared for the circumstances they live in because we're not really sometimes feeling like we're enough for what we have. So how do you... That's the big black cloud. And I don't think it's inevitable. And I don't think we all live there all the time. And I think there's a great lot of possibility for faith in humanity, for faith in ourselves individually and collectively. And so where is that? Where do I see that? Um, some of it, I think, comes from, I think last month when I was here, I quoted uh, Pima Chodron, and I don't have that quotation right in front of me, but um, she said that the thing we need to do, the, the one instruction we need to follow if we want to live meaningful, useful, grounded, centered lives is to see what is. So there's actually, in my mind, there's a great deal of hope in the fact that we see what is in our history and in our present situation in new ways. And we, human beings, we do this all the time. But we are now seeing things in ways that are allowing us to analyze the systems and shift and, and make changes and to move toward more justice and more equity. And there are lots of people working on this. There's, I am, I'm just astounded. And you know what? I find them here online, too. Um, people who are working on understanding what is going on and whose interests are being supported and whose are being ignored and uh, where are the projects that are, are trying to adjust things in different ways and nudge all of us in better directions, more humane, more relational, more just directions. So um, Let me read a little bit to you from Angel Kyoto Williams, who I don't know well. I just keep bumping into the name here and there. Um, she is, I think her pronouns are she, I'm not certain, sorry. Um, a, a, but a Buddhist teacher, an American Buddhist teacher, and says this. My own awakening around racism, both internalized and externalized, was through the Dharma. I'm not a person who has politicized elsewhere and then said, oh, let me map this Dharma thing onto it. I got it from the Dharma because I took seriously the inquiry 
what is this thing that I shamelessly refer to as me? In the examination of me-ness, this construct of me, I think that what can happen is that white America can begin to recognize that we have this other me-ness, and it's this social me-ness, literally this socially constructed ego written into law. No one here actually came from someplace called white. We have allowed a paradigm that was required to move the economy in a particular way and to privilege a particular people to take over our understanding of who we are and to cut ourselves off from love. This often strikes me as such an enormous opportunity for healing for white America to allow itself to drop into this experience of what has happened. It's clear that that needs to be examined and seen. What has happened to you? What have you lost? What have you cut yourself off from? This construct is not you, and these ways of separation are not who you are. So, in many ways, my description of this black cloud of despair has to do with how culturally we are supported in being separate from each other and being separate even from ourselves, from reality. Uh, we very rarely stand barefoot on the ground anymore, if you think about it. I mean, it, we, we are separated from the world out of which we came. Um, we, we lose touch with the earth. So there's, there's a great deal of hope to me in the message that those ways of being separate are not who we are. That is not, those are not our best selves, but it's not preordained, it's not irreversible, it's just a thing that people have made. It's a thing we've maybe sort of gradually slipped into. It's not the way we have to be in the world. And I see lots and lots of signs that people are trying to break down that those patterns, those habits of separation and so, you know, we talk a lot lately about racism. We talk a lot about the economy. We talk about this and that. We all, you know, there's lots of different issues. Pick one. There's, there are so many. You don't have to know them all. You don't have to do them all. But they all are part of this, I think, this habit of being separate. And, and we have a list. We have cultural myths. Many of them, if you're familiar with um, the, the description of the um, characteristics of white supremacy culture, many of them are, overlap greatly with this. And this is just my own personal list. I said, okay, so what are some cultural beliefs? What are some things that we tend to act as if they are true that I personally don't think are? So here's just a random casual list. You would have a different list if you were to make this, but my, here's mine. Perfectionism is possible. Being perfect, it's possible and we should all strive for it. Punishment and fear work, i.e. they're effective in changing people's behavior in ways we want them to change. I don't know, have you, yeah, whatever. Being busy is a virtue. And yeah, I would have thought that Auschwitz and having you know, work makes you free over the gates would have called us hundred, well, you know, that was a long time ago now, and that, that didn't break us of this tendency to think of work as a virtue and busy work as even better. 
Another myth, if I can do it, anyone can do it. That one, oh, I could do a whole sermon on that. We are not okay, or we're not enough. We require something external to fix us. We need experts, we need advice, we need religion. We don't need anything outside ourselves. I think both of those are really strong in our culture, <laughs> and they, they contradict. We can think ourselves into being better. I think I wrote that one for you, use because we do think we can think ourselves into being better. And, and we can, our thoughts are useful. I don't, I don't want to not think. Um, it makes sense to consider individuals the main unit of reality. That was where my list stopped. And I guess that, that, that goes back to that separation. We pretend that we could study a tree. And I don't know, that was how I grew up thinking about trees, or, you know, as individual trees. Turns out there is so much just astoundingly amazing research that's come out in the last, I don't know, decade or two about trees and how they're not a single tree that you see. There are amazing networks of communication between trees and, and among the trees and the other plants and sometimes the animals that live around them. Um, it makes no sense in many ways to think of a single tree as a real thing. Or, surprise, a single human being, really. I mean, none of us would be who we are, where we are, doing what we do without each other. And not just without other humans, but without our, the other beings who live with us. So these are myths, and we have a bunch of those. And we have ways of thinking and we have poets and scientists and teachers and preachers and spiritual guides who are working on helping us see that the systems and the myths we have created are not who we are and they're not inevitable and we can maybe choose different ways of being. So in the, U the Unitarian Universalist Association, I see this process of looking at who we are and thinking about who we might be happening um, right now. The, there's an Article II study commission. Does anybody know what Article II is? Jill knows, but she doesn't count. She, does, she counts a lot. <laughs> Jill counts a lot, but um, I would expect Jill to know, and I wouldn't think probably. So Article II, the seven principles that you read every single service, yay for you. I think that's wonderful. Um, those are part of Article II. The rest of Article II includes the six sources from which um, we draw much of our tradition as Unitarian Universalists and the covenant of the, of the congregations within the association with each other. Um, there is written into the, so these are, these are part of the bylaws of the Unitarian Universalist Association of Congregations. Written somewhere else in the, the bylaws is a um, directive that if a period of time, and I think it's 10 years, has gone by in which there have been no edits or, or study or consideration of Article II, that it will be officially undertaken to study it, to say is this still what we think we are, what we want to be, how we covenant with each other. Um, and so that was called for a couple of years ago by the, the board of the UUA, and there is a commission that's been studying it. One of the things I love is that they were directed in this way. Their charge of the commission included 
um, specifically a statement saying we want you to look at love and what, how love functions in Unitarian Universalism. But what they have come back with a year ago, they said, so we've decided that love is actually our theological core. And it's a little bit groundbreaking for Unitarian Universalism to have a statement that includes the word theology in it, because there has been some resistance in some quarters to that. And we have always been about theology. If you understand theology to be the attempt to articulate truth about what is and the sacredness of what is. But anyway, the, the commission has decided that love is our core, our theological core, which I think is lovely. And again, um, it's a counter to the tendencies towards separation and um, it's a balance to our, our really often very healthy, but sometimes a little bit too heavy, uh, adherence to congregationalism, i.e., you know, that again, we, pre we sometimes pretend that every congregation is its own thing, that it's independent, that it doesn't need the others to survive. Um, so, and, and maybe I'll talk more another time, maybe next month, about the Article Two Study Commission. You should know that they have a, a survey online that is open, and they would like every single one of you to go and fill out the survey. It, it will be open through the end of April. So um, if you want to have some input into this, um, this conversation, that's good. One of the things that might happen is that there are um, some people within our movement who have proposed the Eighth Principle. Um, which is a specifically anti-racist, anti-oppression uh, anti um, commitment. And um, that conversation has been welcomed into the Article Two conversation as a whole. So um, we, we may rewrite those seven principles, which weren't always seven, they were originally six. Just so you know, we do this sometimes. And I love this claiming of love as our Core. And I noticed that we were doing this and didn't notice it at first. Other people, outsiders to our movement, actually first called us the love people. And it was back when those, um, what we now call side with love, but was then the stand on the side of love campaign, which um, then they had these beautiful yellow t-shirts with the hearts on them. And they were very um, active in various social justice movements around the country, um, you know, out in Arizona with the border and lots of other things. So people often put on their yellow t-shirts. And when you go to GA, if you do the action of public witness, often everybody's, there's a sea of yellow t-shirts. And so people started saying, other people outside our movement started saying, oh, the love people are there. Because all those t-shirts had hearts on them. Um, the love, standing on the side of love, side with love, we became the love people in the public eye. Um, and that was before we went, oh, maybe love is our theological core. So there's, in, an, in the naming of that, we're actually naming something that other people at least perceive to have already been there. Um, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm really kind of interested to see where we go with uh, claiming that and, and exploring what it might mean. Another really fun thing that has happened in our movement, especially in the last few years, that in which we have um, consciously and, and with great intent 
tried to center voices of people who are often at the margins. And this is racially, but also economically, and um, disability activists have had a lot of part of these conversations, and gender and sexuality, um, all sorts of, so we have centered voices that are often excluded from your white, middle-class, well-educated, New England-ish based often kind of conversations that are historically UU. Um, and one of the things that I've been hearing, I, um, let's see, I first went to GA, I think in 2012, no, yeah. Yeah, in 2012. And then I've been to GA several times since then. And there's, a, there's this definite shift that's happening in the worship occasions, where we, the, the leaders of worship are often invoking the ancestors. And I think this is coming from the leaders of color among us. Um, that, that's my experience of it anyway. Um, they, they live in a different culture that has just more appreciation for the ancestors and it's not just sort of fun stories about family history it's this it's this really palpably lived and felt deeply felt attachment to responsibility to connection to the ancestors and also to our descendants and it's it's very it's very lovely and it's different from my experience of white middle class American culture where you know, we might collect stories and write books and memoirs, um, but we don't, as we go through our days, take time to stop and feel connected to those who have gone before us and those who will follow us um, in ways that shift perhaps our perspectives on the present and maybe make us uh, move with more intention and make better decisions. Um, it's, a different, it's a different kind of thing. I also heard last year at General Assembly during a worship service uh, an African-American leader um, name the fact that we fret about our descendants and what they will think about us and whether we will leave them a good enough world and worrying about them. And he said, I can hear my great grandchildren calling to me. And they're saying, you don't have to do everything. Just hold the space, we are coming. Just hold the space, we're coming. So we don't, see again, we get, we get really worried when we think we're supposed to fix everything. We're supposed to make it all perfect. We want to hand down our, to our children and, and their children and the children. We want to hand, we have this idea that someday it'll be, I don't know, Starfleet perfect or something, you know, like Earth in the Star Trek shows, you know, where everybody's happy and well-dressed and the lawns are always manicured and the buildings <laughs> always work and they open the doors for you. And, um, and we worry because we can't, we, we just can't, we just can't. We're like going in the other direction so many days. We worry that we're useless, that our descendants will curse us. And he says, no, they're just calling. They're saying, just hold on, just hold on. It's okay, we're on the way. We are coming, we are coming. They're, the, we are part of this big long chain and we're just one part of it. And all we've got to do is hold on, which, by the way, I think is 
good pandemic-related theme right now. Many of us are just, in so many parts of our lives, we're just holding on. We're just keeping the doors open. We're just getting the work done. We're just, it's okay. It's okay is what I'm here. If you think of nobody is alone, no moment in time as being alone, nothing is judged on its own, nothing is responsible on its own. We're all part of this big, many, many, many forces and many historical strands. And all we have to do is stand with integrity in the place where we stand and hold the space for better things. Hold the intention to move in better directions. And the people who are coming will continue our work. They will stand in that space and make it a little bigger. They will nudge the direction of the culture in the better ways that we started figuring out we needed to turn toward. Hold on, hold the space, we're coming. And I, that was just, um, that moment in worship was such a gift to me. I also wanna stop talking. Yeah, I think I do. <laughs> there are other places where I see a lot of hope happening, a lot of people doing really good work and most of what feels like really amazingly good work to me is about helping people connect better um, if you haven't if you've thought about reading the common read for the uua this year i recommend it because some of what i wanted to talk to you about and didn't is in that book um, ways people have tried to affect um, violence in poor communities and I have to tell you this. One person is Devon Boggan, who was hired by the city of Richmond, California, to try to affect the rates of violence. He had, came up with this program that everybody thought was crazy. He had a lot of trouble getting permission to do it. But what it amounted to is he hired three or four mentors to just go out into the community and build relationships. They had to have nothing to do with the police, but just to identify the people most likely to die young and take them on field trips to, to broaden their worldview, to just keep them company. And um, at the end of the day, one of the things he says is, our theory of change is simple. I want them to desire to live. And that little program spent like, I forget, $1.5 million but it reduced the murder rate in that area. Huge, I think I read 70%, but don't hold me to that. It was huge, it was huge. And probably saved $50 million. Um, in, in de it, it measurably, over a decade, decreased violence in that area, that particular neighborhood. Um, and really, the goal was to help people want to live. So, I'm in the want to live camp, and how can we help people want to live? How can we help ourselves to want to live? And I want to leave you with a poem by Adrienne Marie Brown, whose name you may have heard from me before. She is a, um, an activist and writer of color, and she wrote Emergent Strategy, which some of us know is... Her, everything I read by her is brilliant. But she wrote this, I think, in January of this year. It's entitled, she's also an active blogger and she's active on social media. And, um, it, okay, so something is ending. 
You want to argue with me on the internet. You feel judged by my coping mechanisms. It's all misunderstood, my love. Listen, so many have died, but we are still alive. Argue all you want, you're still here. I'll defend nothing, I'm still here. We both know something of living. I promise I don't know more than you, and I mostly don't think I do, I promise. And you don't know more than I do about reaching for tomorrow from this blessed broken body, mind, or spirit heart. Still, I am learning every day. Simple things like how to breathe, to love without controlling, to admit I have been wrong. I am learning every day. Not to apologize for each breath or hearing the call of joy. Even here in the ruins, I feel the thrum of life. Even in your corrections and bickering, all I hear is each one of you saying, I'm alive, I exist, I want to live, and I hear you. All I see is how much you want to be seen, vibrant, special, nobody's fool, free, and I see you. All I know is death is not our enemy. Time is no accident or prison, but the gift of life. Being right is not an, a permanent state. It's logical to be obsessed with living and to be flooded with fear. Crawl beside me back into our ancestors' arms. Do you argue with invisible strangers because no one else will listen? Look, even wrong, you're someone's miracle. We might all be a single sacred mistake, but we are still alive. Every time I feel lost, frustrated, stuck, angry, or overcome by despair and grief, meaning every day, every single day of this slow and fatal end time, I find my eyes in a mirror and whisper, you are still alive. And to each loved one, we are still alive. Our adaptations unfolding from our undeniable need for each other. Yes, something is ending, but it isn't us, love. The future is not something they can steal, or you can win, or I can win. It's at the intersection of every argument. It's in the resistance to every oppression. It's in the generosity that bursts through hoarding. It's the impulse to save each other from the sharp corners of a full life. I see you trying. I hear your, you singing in dialectical chorus echoing our own kind of forever. We live, we lived. We live, we lived. We live, we lived. Amen.